Hey, Green Future Growers! Welcome to Season 3. I'm your host, Jackie Marie Beyer. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes for free or follow on your favorite podcast app. And let's get growing! Hey, everyone! This is Jackie Marie Beyer, your host, here to help inspire you on your journey to create, grow, and enjoy a green, organic oasis. So let's get growing. How many years is that that uh, number of interviews? Uh, it'll be seven years in January. Oh, that's a pretty good track record. It so, is. You know, I am every only only several years. Been uh been at it for a while. So uh, I my show is a success because of my amazing guests, just like you. <laughs> so completely, certainly not anything that I have done, but just uh, lots of great information that people have shared. Is... And, and how did how did you get started with it? Oh, you know, it's funny story. I originally thought I was getting on webinar on fire. So I don't know if you follow John Lee Dumas, who um, runs. The... Do you listen to podcasts or are you a podcaster? I do listen to podcasts, but not uh, so not he he ran a podcast called Entrepreneurs on Fire um, way back in twenty. He started, I think, in two thousand twelve or something, and I started listening in two thousand thirteen. I was taking this leadership class, and we had to listen, and I and just like there wasn't that much, you know. And I don't know. I found him and started following him, and I thought we were gonna. I was going to webinar on fire, and my husband who's really the gardener was going, we were going to learn how to teach people how to garden. And mm -hmm. it was really going to be like his show, but I, I ended up on podcasters on fire and I just, I don't know. I was like, well, I'll just join. There's like a, you know, 30 day money back guarantee and see how it goes. And I was trying to, like, I'm an elementary school teacher by trade. And I was trying to get mm -hmm. out of the classroom and really build like my dream is to be a children's book illustrator. So I don't know. Anyway, long story short, here I am seven years later. And I've actually gone from brown thumb to green thumb. This summer was my most um, prolific year myself as a gardener. Like I grew cucumbers and corn and peppers out the kazoo, tomatoes. I even like, um, I can smell like I made a zucchini parmesan this morning with tomatoes and my goal this afternoon is to make my own tomato sauce to freeze for the winter so oh, i've learned a lot um from everybody and just been inspired and uh i usually call myself the organic eater but now i'm becoming <laughs> the organic gardener too so but my husband grows um i call it like the mini farm and he i pretty much don't have to go to the produce section other than fruit from june through november like he grows a lot of barf and last year it was almost into like february he grew because we grew a ton of potatoes and carrots and uh stuff like that yeah and wh wh where are you yeah you know i was going to ask you that we are in northwest montana up by the canadian oh. border just west of glacier park yeah thinking that where are you located as i'm taking my I, i'm i'm literally in portland oregon <laughs> oh nice how do you like um, that uh i it, uh, i like portland quite a bit um i have actually been here now for 21 years and and actually i lived here for part of a year uh 26 years ago um so 
b- before that, I had never lived in a place for more than a few years. Um, and so it's kind of strange to me that I've, you know, to realize I've been here this long now. Um, but it's a great town. It's uh, like everywhere, it's changing quite a bit. And if you're, you know, in a place for that long, you see all those changes. And, Kind of remember how it was and miss some of those things but there's also things that have gotten better over time so you know. do you have a um, lot of smoke fire forest fires uh we have been really lucky this year and have not uh gotten much smoke uh we've had a little bit of kind of uh high atmosphere smoke you know where we could you know we get a, the colors look a little weird but it hasn't really affected the air quality very much um and uh, just about a week ago woke up and all you know the car was covered in ash that had fallen out of the sky um uh but this summer we've been incredibly lucky without that last summer we spent i think it was more than two weeks uh with air quality um in the you know kind of off the charts range um uh living in sealed up houses and when working outside, oops, I should turn that off. <laughs> I was um, like, wait, that's not, my phone makes that same noise. <laughs> my alarm, um, like when I water, like every 15 minutes or so, it goes off and then I move the water. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's my the... alarm for water. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so, you know, last summer was terrible. This well, that's summer. good. Our summer, our July was just awful like that. It was hot and smoky yeah. and had to seal, you know, not only was it hot, but you had to seal your windows because you couldn't right. like, can go outside. And even like, and then it came back like last week, my husband, his voice was just so hoarse. And I was like, you shouldn't work outside so much, but he said so much to do. What are you going to do? You know? And Yeah. Well, you know, last year when we were in, I mean, so our, I don't know if you follow your AQI there, but our AQI was uh, like 550. Um, so just like off the charts bad. And, you know, on the farm, we had to get some stuff done. Um, and uh, I would wear a, a respirator outside all day. Mm. You know, we've had a few years in the last uh, few years where I've spent significant amounts of time working mm. outside in a respirator for eight hours a day just because the air quality is so bad and it makes a huge difference at the end of the day um, yeah crazy anyway all right well do you have a copy of the questions i usually ask i do yeah <clears throat> all right well i guess i probably should open my copy up <laughs> i used to always uh type while people were talking and like write <laughs> And and then I got this guy who like transcribes my transcripts anymore, so I don't have to do that. But um, but I do take notes, and uh, but I write them by hand, which is good because then people don't hear me typing. Because like now when I go back to like listen to like especially episode twenty seven, which was so good with uh, Russ Medge, but like the typing is awful. I'm like I don't know why I didn't hear it in the beginning, but anyway. All right, here we go. Ready. You know, I always like to tell everybody, Josh, that uh, it's super easy to edit. So, like, if you need to let the dog out or want to get a drink or want to change an answer or think about something, don't hesitate to put me on hold. But it's pretty laid back at the same time. So 
Here we go. Welcome to the Green Organic Garden. It is Tuesday, September 14, 2021, and I have the most awesome guest on the line. You are just going to love him. He wrote this super cool book called Build Your Own Farm Tools. And just like, I totally want to do like the Julie and Julia thing with this book and like go through each like project one step at a time and like build all of them there's so many cool things that i need and like that are are handy and um i don't know if you guys have heard me talk about it before but like i do not know how to build anything so i need someone to like teach me <laughs> to actually be here and be like no do it this way but anyway um welcome to the show josh thanks for having me glad to be here well, I am super excited. Like I just, I, I love all the illustrations and the step-by-step -step instructions and like the farm safety in the beginning and like the little stuff about like, what's the difference between like, I had no idea there was a difference between a screw and a nail and why they work differently and like the different power tools. I do know a little bit about drills because that is on our essential tool list that we have because I feel like my my husband uses the drill all the time and like we've been through many and I do know there's something about like you want the most powerful for us anyway he wants like the most powerful drill he can get but he wants a cordless one you know so and he doesn't really care about how heavy it is but I asked him for my birthday this year I was like will you I want my own drill <laughs> so I can build some things and fix some things and just like I don't want to borrow your drill but I was thinking of getting a smaller um, yeah drill. but I ended up he got me a hori hori knife instead so that was cool <laughs> so maybe you're gonna have to get Christmas. your own drill yeah or maybe for Christmas or something who knows I did think about going into the hardware store the other day and getting one anyway go ahead and tell listeners a little bit about yourself and then I was looking today you wrote another book is it compact farms or Compact Farms, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so that I'm was the. About that too. Yeah, so Compact Farms uh, was kind of the first book that I wrote was Story. So this uh, Story Publishing published both books, and um, and Compact Farms was uh, they they actually more or less came to me with that idea via a friend who had worked with them before. Um, well, is and, your farm compact? How big is your farm? Yeah, yeah. So compact farm is about is about farms that are under five acres, and that's that's a scale that I'm really really interested in. My I have a farm that I'm managing right now called Cully Neighborhood Farm, which is in Portland, Oregon, uh, urban farm, and we're on a one acre lot, um, and we cultivate about a half an acre of that um, in bed space. Um, and we do uh, about 70, uh, 72 CSA shares um, out of that space. And I've, I've been working, a friend of mine actually started that farm and it's one of the farms that's profiled in Compact Farms. So the, in the book, I profile 15 different farms that are all under five acres, including Slowhand Farm, which uh, at the time, uh was uh, well actually i guess it was a little bit that's after your website right exactly yeah so <clears throat> slowhand farm is kind of my business name and uh slowhand farm now the business manages cully neighborhood farm which is the farm that i'm farming at both of those farms the, the original slowhand farm and uh cully neighborhood farm of about oh i don't remember eight years ago or so 
are profiled in that book along with uh, 13 other farms. Um, so that book is, you know, kind of more broadly about farms in that small scale. And then the second book is, is kind of, you know, it's not totally connected to that first book, but it's, you know, here are the tools that I have used and built for myself and, you know, seen on other people's farms and, um, and built for other farms as well. And I have an engineering background. So before I was in farming, um, I had an, I got an engineering degree in college and worked very briefly in um, factories and, um, and then got sidetracked by farming and have been farming ever since. But, you know, I'm kind of bringing a little bit of that engineering background into this book and saying, you know, okay, when you build your own stuff, you know, here's some things that you maybe want to think about. And the plans in this book for the tools, um, originally they weren't going to be quite as prescriptive as they are, but the publisher encouraged me to, to make them a little bit more step-by-step how-to. Um, so they are that way, but my, you know, my intention is really just to kind of show, you know, here's, um, here's a bunch of things that you could build. And more importantly, you know, here's the reason, you know, here are the techniques within building those. And here are some of the reasons why I've built them the way that I've built them and designed them the way that I've designed them so that you can make modifications and, uh, you know, make your own designs and think about how to build your own things beyond just the designs that are in this um, book. It reminds me like interview number one, and then I've done other ones with him is this guy, Denny Trey, who is in my podcasting class. And he's actually a runner down in Florida, but he also gardens for his family. And he wrote a book called, um, oh my gosh, am I going to blank on his book? Ready for Race Day. And it's kind of like a similar thing where you like kind of build your own training plan instead of like a one size fits all. And 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 your book kind of reminds me of that where it's like, you know, modify the tools for your own, um, you know, what you need and, and being able to kind of like, uh, you know, make them more unique for your own personal, um, what works for you. And I just love tools. Like I'm so, it's so funny because one of the interviews that I didn't hit the record was with JM Fortier up in Canada. Do you know him? Yeah. He has that business, um, growers and co and like, he came out with the, we got one of his broad forks, which my husband loved this summer. We both used, um, was really nice. And just, he talks about like going and trying all these different farm tools at different places and, um, and, and just like, you know, he, he did a similar thing because he felt like he couldn't find exactly the right tool that he wanted. And so he wanted to make tools in Canada that, um, and just are super high quality, but also like work the way he wants them to work. Anyway, right, yeah, I yeah. Like- so just on on JM, um, I I've written for a number of years for a, a, a journal called Growing for Market, and you know, kind of had a tool column in that. Yeah, with and, Andrew Mepburn. Uh, right, exactly. Um, <clears throat> and so. Um, when JM wrote his first book, he actually sent me a copy of that. And that's kind of how we, we met. Um, and he knew me through the growing for market stuff. And then we've also connected through, um, an, a, you know, kind of a, um, meeting of folks building tools called the slow tools, um, group, 
um, and Stone Barn Center in New York uh, mm. was, you know, kind of part of setting that up. And Johnny's uh, Selected Seeds also did a lot of work with that. Elliot Coleman, another, another name. So they were all involved in that. And Jam and I uh, were both at one of those meetings together. And, and uh, I remember him saying, like, you know, I'm not the guy that, that builds the tools, but, you know, I definitely, he definitely was somebody who was, you know, looking around at all this stuff and being like, now, how do we find that? And and I think his book has really um, kicked off, you know, has been one of the things that's kicked off this smaller farm movement that has allowed more people who are making tools to make more tools available for those smaller farms. Um, when I was starting out, there weren't that many tools available for the smaller farms, uh, you know, because it was a you know, somewhat of a dying market. I mean, it's, I think it's growing quite a bit now. I agree 100%. I think his book, The Market Gardener, has really changed. I mean, I think he's just amazing what he's done to inspire people and help people be successful. You know, I've interviewed several farmers that have followed his methods and been able to run successful businesses because of his book and his classes. He's got that online farm class and just... Yeah. Um, yeah, he's amazing. I was just watching him on Instagram and he's over in France and I'm so jealous because I want to go back to Paris so bad and go. And I was just like, oh, see, he's there. Like, he's not afraid to travel right now. I don't, I, I need to renew my passport. But anyway, uh, so John, you know what? I do always start my show asking about your very first gardening experience. Like, were you a kid? Were you an adult? Who were you with? What yeah. did you grow like? It sounds like you were saying in our pre-chat that you've moved around a lot. So was it when you were a kid or? Yeah, it was, it was actually when I was a kid. My, my parents had gardens um, and, you know, kind of the earliest that I remember, you know, my early memory um, it actually is funny because it's kind of tool related. <laughs> um, we, we lived in um, Ann Arbor, Michigan and um, uh, had a garden there. Uh, and I remember going to the garden store with my parents and it was like, okay, you can pick out one tool. And I remember, you know, being very intentional about which tool I picked out, which was kind of the meanest looking little hoe that had a little fork uh, <laughs> on one side and, you know, hoe head on the other side. And um, I don't know that I ever did any actual work with that tool, but um, you know, that's kind of my, my early gardening memory is that gardening in Ann Arbor. Um, and then as we moved around, you know, kind of always having a garden and mostly I didn't do very much in the garden. So, I mean, I remember my parents having gardens and kind of them being there, but it wasn't really until I, uh, probably until I got out of college that I started gardening on my own and getting more interested in, in, uh, in growing my own food. Uh, so how did you go from engineer to farmer? Well, my, my inspiration um, at that time, well, there were a few inspirations, um, but it was kind of a combination of uh, reading some stuff um, by a guy, um, uh, E.G. Valianatos, who was, you know, kind of writing about um, the, the, you know, how how the green revolution had, and um, it, the switch to industrial agriculture had really um, been hard on um, uh, village life and kind of small communities around the world. Um, 
and uh, and you know seeing the organic movement kind of coming up in the uh, 80s and 90s and and understanding uh, but you know some both the social uh, impact you know in terms of industrial agriculture <clears throat> uh, exposing a lot of you know using a lot of migrant labor and exposing a lot of those people to chemicals which was a bad thing and then also just putting those chemicals out into the environment which is a bad thing for everyone um, and so you know getting really interested in how to create an alternative system of food production and um, uh, community food production. And then coming across John Jevons book, How to Grow More Vegetables, which is you know, really concentrated on the, concentrating on, you know, how, literally how do you grow as many vegetables as possible in as small a space as possible. And reading his book, and then uh, I happened to live in, at that time. I was an engineer in Silicon Valley, and his original project had been in Palo Alto, which is where I was living. Um, and they still had a garden store there, and he was teaching some workshops through that garden store. And um, and so I took some workshops with him and got inspired about that and started thinking about urban agriculture and um and then, uh, you know, went and apprenticed on some farms. Uh, that was a recommendation from another guy in urban agriculture, a very influential fellow named Jack Smith. He said, go out and learn farming from farmers and then bring that back to the urban uh, venue. And that's kind of what I basically ended up doing in, in a lot of ways. And so now I'm back in that urban farming environment, um, but having worked on farms outside the urban area and using a lot of what I learned from John Jevons and, you know, and uh, all the other farmers that I learned from along the way uh, and applying that uh, here on my, my own uh, farming operation and still experimenting, you know, continuing to you know, try and learn more and more. So what is growing well for your CSA members on your half acre at, what is it, Cully? How do you spell that, Cully Neighborhood Farm? Yeah, Cully uh, is C-U-L-L-Y. Oh, cool, I got it right. Yeah, so it's just the Cully Neighborhood Farm. Um, and we are, you know, right right in the Cully Neighborhood is a residential neighborhood. There's a church that uh, kind of owns this, what was an empty lot, and a friend of mine um, and a friend of his uh, started a farm on it about 11 years ago and then about uh, five or six years ago I can't remember I, I came and started working with him um, and uh, it, slowly he's kind of handed that operation over to me I'm hoping I'll come back at some point but um, um, uh, we so I've been growing there for about four or five years this has actually been a really interesting year just the weather has been weird <laughs> I feel like I say that every year um and uh some things are doing well and some things aren't uh, aren't doing so well um it it's been we've had a number of heat spells and you know of course here in the Pacific Northwest we had the hottest days on record ever um back-to-back record-breaking um heat waves yeah, and so a lot of the hot weather stuff is doing well. I actually, you know, I, I think I'm, you know, was saying I was down in Palo Alto when I kind of got started out and I also did a farming apprenticeship down in the Bay Area and worked down in California quite a bit. And 
um, this year more than any year, I'm, you know, having kind of flashbacks to farming in California because it's hot and dry the way it was in California. I mean, we're always dry up here in the summertime, but we're, we're not usually that hot. Um, but it's been, we've had some pretty significant hot weather. So tomatoes and basil are, are doing pretty well. And, uh, but everything's going a lot faster. Um, you know, it's, you know, kind of getting ready faster and then ending faster than, than it has in previous years. Oh, that's interesting. So we started out super hot in July, but then finally mid-August, we got rain and cooler nights, which kind of like has spurred a lot of growth, um, truth be told. But we're having kind of similar tomatoes, peppers this year are just cucumbers out of, I mean, just prolific. Um, and then other things we've been struggling with. Did you guys, so did you guys get rain like mid-August? Like, and then we've had a pretty steady like rain once a week. It's been, our lawn is lusher than I have ever seen it. Certainly, especially in September, like oh, in July, it was dry and crispy. And I thought, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? Uh -huh. It was like what it normally would be now. And now it is just, I mean, it's so gorgeous. These last, we did have that one when I was telling you in the pre-chat, week of like uh smoky hazy we've had some of those days but yeah overall like the last three weeks have just been the montana i know and love and just gorgeous every day just super thankful yeah so, did it clear up for you guys so uh the way this season has gone so far it's it, we we had some early dry heat um in april which is a which is unusual we actually started irrigating uh, a full, I think, three weeks mm. earlier than I have in the 20-some years I've been farming here than I've ever irrigated before. So normally, it's pretty consistent third week of April, third, fourth week of April is when we start irrigating, and then we may have a break from irrigating uh, because it'll continue raining in May and uh, June sometimes. Um, but this year, it was first week of April, we were already irrigating and we never stopped irrigating. It, it did cool off a little bit. So um, uh, May and June were relatively cool, um, but they were dry. And then July and August, uh, the begin both the beginning of July, we had this crazy heat wave where it got over 100, I think it got 115, 117 here. Um, which is like, oh my gosh, you know, probably breaking the record by 10 plus degrees yeah. from what we had ever had before. And certainly from what I had ever seen. Um, and that actually, normally we, we might have, if we have a, you know, hot day like that, it's one day. And this was like two or three days in a row. Oh, yeah. Um, and then, uh, beginning of August, we had another one, um, where it was, you know, over a hundred for a couple of days. Um, and then it, it's cooled off since then, but we haven't had any significant, I, we, we typically do get a rain event in August. Um, and I think we did get some minor, minor precipitation, uh, but we really haven't had any precipitation still, any significant precipitation since uh, really the end of March. Oh my goodness. So it's been a very, very dry year. And and you were mentioning smoke earlier. And 
I've just been expecting it because previous, you know, last year and a couple of years ago, we've had really bad smoke here and the fires have been really bad. And um, because it's been so dry this year, I've been amazed, knock on wood, um, it's still possible that it'll happen, but we have, we've had almost no smoke, which has been kind of amazing. So that's the, the one thing that's doing well. But, you, you know, because it's been a little bit cooler and we do have uh, irrigation water, <clears throat> um, things are starting to grow again. But both those, especially the second heat wave was when we were putting in a lot of the plants for that would be growing right now. And we kind of had, we had some of that stuff get knocked back and then we had to restart some stuff. And so it's been a little bit of a, Rocky so what would be growing right too. now or what would you be planting stuff new like you put fall yeah yeah so we we actually just finished planting all the stuff um so typically um july and august are when we're planting all the stuff for our fall harvests which are september october november our season goes our, our on our farm. Our season goes into November, and then we we finish the week before Thanksgiving. Um, a lot of farms around here actually have started going year round. And back when I was at Slohan Farm, I did go year round, so I've I've done that before. But um, but we got, we kind of have to get all that fall stuff going when there's still some light and heat. Um, you know, you're even further north than I am. I think. Um, but uh, you know this this time of year, <clears throat> uh, so uh, next week is the transition for the equinox, and uh, the days are going to start getting pretty short um, in October, and so there's not enough light for things to grow. So we really need to get stuff planted in August so that it's up and going and has that light in September and you know the first part of October. Do you plant directly in the out. ground or do you do any greenhouse stuff? Yeah, we, we plant most of our crops in the greenhouse starting um, and then transplant them out into the field. We do direct seed a little bit of stuff into the ground. Um, and what do you plant for the fall? Like lettuce? And... Yep, so lettuce, lettuces. Um, and uh, and we try and harvest lettuce kind of into the beginning of October. Um, you know, might go even through October if it's a good year. Once it starts getting really colder and wetter, they start, the lettuce will start suffering. And if it freezes, the lettuce doesn't really, you know, you can kind of, you can do row cover to kind of extend it a little bit longer, but it's kind of going downhill at that point. And so we transition to the chicories, um, which are, you know, kind of in the same general family as lettuce. Um, and, you know, you can use for salads the same as you use for lettuce, but you can also cook with them. And uh, that's things like escarole and endive and, uh, and radicchios. Um, and, but they'll go all the way through the winter here. Um, so they do, they actually start to taste better when it gets cooler and in that um, late October, November, December, they're, they're kind of in their prime at that time. Um, so we're planting all the, you know, we planted all those in the end of July, beginning of August. Um, and then a lot of um, chard, a, a new round of chard, and then, you know, other bunch greens like uh, kale and collards um, and other brassicas like uh, cabbage and 
uh, rutabagas and turnips and uh, winter radishes and um, fennel, well, you know, a whole, whole bunch of different, different stuff for the fall, um, mustards and arugula, lots of different grains. Um, and uh, the last of our roots probably get planted in July, so beets and carrots and uh, those kinds of things, the, the, the root crops that we bring all the way through the summer. So now all kinds of stuff getting planted. So is there something you're excited to try next year or something new that you haven't done before? Oh, <laughs> there's always stuff that I'm excited to try. I've, there's never, never enough space or enough time for all the different things that I want to try out. The, the, the farm, you know, is a big garden and it's basically just a big experiment. And it's, you know, uh, I love, love trying new stuff, uh, you know, all the time. You, you know, uh, you know, we're making little, little changes all the time and kind of going back and forth and between methods like this year, um uh i was doing experiments with tomato trellising so a long time ago i used to use a method called florida weave um which is kind of horizontal strings you know as the plants grow up we keep adding more and more horizontal strings to tie them in and, and then uh, i don't know about 10 12 years ago i switched over to doing um vertical strings and training and doing a lot of pruning and doing uh, what's called double leader pruning on tomatoes. And so this year was an experiment kind of doing both of those and trying to uh, look at which one was doing better. And for some varieties, I think it'll be better in one technique and for other varieties in the other technique. And I'll crunch all those numbers this winter just to confirm, you know, what I'm seeing out in the, out in the field. But, you know, I've got a long list of things that I want to, uh, try next year and when it gets to October, November and things start to really slow down in the fields, that's when I'll go and dig into that list and start thinking about, okay, which are the ones that I actually am going to do and which are the ones that I, um, are, I'm going to continue to put on the back burner and save for future years. You are a real data cruncher. I was reading your notes at the <laughs> back of the book and how you like talked about how you take a picture and like make sure you record it at the end of the day like when you start irrigating and take another picture when you yeah. stop so you can like measure your water and all these things and i was just like wow because i was a, i was a data junkie but i take a million pictures but then i'm really bad about like taking that like then i'm like where is that picture and like you no know, like i like the way that you're recording it at the end of the night and like using that i always think someday i'm going to go back and you know, I have yet to go back and actually, <laughs> I did go through, I'm actually, I should do the hand notes because I'm better. Like I did go back because I have notes all the way back from like 1993 when Mike and I first got married about yeah. planting dates. And I was surprised that like almost consistently every year he puts things in the ground the first two weeks of April between April 7th and April 14th. Like I thought it, you know, there's a few years where he started at the end of March and a few years where he didn't get things in no May, but consistently, usually like he's planting potatoes and carrots and peas and things those first two weeks in April. So I was really surprised about that, but like, as far as yeah, that, that is the only thing I have. Those those kinds of dates are uh, are really valuable. I mean, and they they get. I mean, for the home gardener, 
Um, I think they're fun to look at. And if you can follow them, you will get more, you know, you'll learn from them and you'll get, you know, if you follow them, you'll get more consistent results. Um, but if you're, you know, once you're like, why can't I get, I wish I could get in the ground. And then you realize, oh, well, I really like, you know, don't need to. Yeah. And, and that's a, that's a huge thing is I think people get anxious early in the season. Yeah. and, uh, you know, kind of if you have those dates at the bit consistent from season to season, it, it really helps, or at least it helps me to be like, okay, no, 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 I, you know, I'm seeing everybody's pictures on Instagram, but I know yes. for me yes. where I am, I, I'm totally fine. I don't have to have things. And in then the people were like, so many people this year were like, am I too late? Am I too late? Am I too late? Yeah. They were so worried and all these western montana gardening groups and different things and it was nice to be able to say no don't worry and don't panic and yeah the other thing i was going to say is man my tomatoes were so heavy like i usually like to just use cages i'm a pretty basic and this year our tomatoes are so heavy the plants are so full and the tomatoes grew so big they have literally knocked so many of my cages over and they're just like laying down sideways so, so did, i should did, check out that trellising stuff but yeah did you have a, a little bit of a cooler start to the season also or i totally want to say yes i want to say huh. that we were late like i almost want to say we had snow on the ground at the beginning of april i don't have my journal right here in yeah. front of me but i'm pretty sure we we had a really late start again this year but then because we had all that heat in july and also mike like um he had me like search out this Oregon spring tomato that he remembered was a really uh short growing season um slicing tomato and then I don't know if like I mixed up the plants and like some of them got close to my Roma tomatoes so like I had these 15 Roma tomato plants and they are so huge and I think maybe they cross pollinate or something because some are just I don't know what happened. They don't look yeah. like a Roma. They look, but they don't look like a slicing tomato. They look like an oversized Roma. I mean, they are just monsters. And our our Romas are really big, also. Unless you're saving, are, are you saving the seeds? No, I didn't. Yeah, so cross pollination in the in the first year wouldn't. Do, I mean, that wouldn't have anything to do with the, oh. the size of the plant. So that's only in future generations. Um, no, I don't so unless know you're saving the seeds, it wouldn't. But our but our aromas actually are uh, uh, I mean we don't literally grow aroma but our sauce tomato variety this year is uh, putting out the largest fruits I've ever seen it put out. Um, well, I grew those San Marzano. Uh, yeah, yeah. Melissa Norris told me those are really good for like salsa and for paste and for. Yeah. We got a chest yeah. freezer last year, so I was able to freeze them. And last so last year we got our freezing frost on September eighth. And the mm. tomato plants all died. And I thought the tomatoes were all going to freeze and I was going to go down there. And for three weeks after, or from September 8th through October 15th, I was able to make three batches. Like I would go down there and pick ripe on the vine tomatoes, harvest them, come in, make a couple of batches of sauce and then go down again and again. And it was just crazy. And we've never had that in Montana. And this year we're going through the same thing again, although it's starting a lot sooner. And we yeah. didn't get the killer frost in September, um, or we haven't Yeah, We thought maybe yeah. last night and still didn't come. I don't think. I'm pretty sure. Well, I think that I think that cool start to the season um, got actually, I mean, it delayed the earliest 
ripening of the fruit, but I actually think it got the plants off to a really good start in some mm -hmm. ways. Um, so they weren't encouraged to flower um, and, you know, create fruit uh, as early, but that let them get a little bit bigger. This is what I feel like I was seeing on our particular spot. Um, and I suspect that as a result, we've seen less blossom end rot. I don't know if that's something that you see regularly where you are. I but, had a uh, huge problem with that last year. And yeah. this year, so last I was, year was a bad on top year of my watering. So I think that yeah, happened. so I, I think that that start may have had something to do with it also where the plants weren't setting fruit until a little bit later and weren't trying to ripen the fruit until a little bit later. And typically we do see the blossom end rot on the earliest fruit. That's the worst. And I was actually just talking to a, um, a guy who uh, researches blossom end rot and, uh, and he was kind of confirming that that, that was um, uh, a strong possibility because blossom end rot is apparently strongly correlated with um, lush growth. So if you're in a phase where the plant is growing very lushly, that is actually going to encourage blossom and rot. Um, because well, the funny thing, I, I talked to JM48 about that last year and he, like people told me it was the calcium, but he explained to me that the problem was that my calcium wasn't getting into my roots because I wasn't watering and it wasn't circulating. And so then once I started watering, it went away and I was able to harvest the rest of the tomato. But like last year, I probably only harvested half of what I should have. Yeah. Whereas this year, because I've really been paying attention to watering, yeah, I am harvesting more, I think. But I was worried because at the beginning of like in July, my plants were just like tons of green you know, leaves and really bushy plants. And it didn't seem like there were that many tomatoes growing on them for as big as the plants were, but then they took, they've done just, it's extraordinary. Yeah. In the, in the past, I've said exactly what JM is saying. And it was interesting talking to this guy because he was saying, actually the calcium is most likely a secondary thing. Oh. Um, and it's a little bit of a red herring in terms of the explanation, but I think it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't affect the, you know, what you're actually doing when you're watering it is still encouraging, even if it's not the calcium transfer, or whatever, it's still encouraging the, the kind of conditions that uh, create less blossom end rot. So um, yeah, it's just, it's fascinating, you know, talking to these researchers all the time because you get these little insights um, and, you know, they learn, they're learning things too, you know, things that we were hearing 10, 20 years ago, it's like, oh, you know, actually maybe some of that stuff, we weren't understanding it in the best way. And we kind of have a new understanding of that. So um, I feel lucky I, I get to talk to a lot of folks, um, you know, in the university systems and, you know, kind of at this higher level, and then uh, hopefully be a little bit of a conduit through, you know, the writing and uh, uh, books uh, for some of that information. And especially as the climate changes, I think also mm -hmm. that is, but definitely it seems like there's a huge uh, influx of information about soil health and like breakthroughs and things about yeah. what's going on there too. So what about something that didn't go the way you thought it was going to this year? Anything that didn't turn out the way you were hoping? Oh, lots of things. <laughs> Again, you know, every year, uh, you know, I, I, 
and it, and it almost inevitably seems like uh, once I think I've gotten something down and I know how to grow it, uh, the next year it'll totally fail. I mean, one of the crops, you know, just off the top of my head, and there's <laughs> numerous ones this year, but one of the crops that did not do well for us at all were onions. And I need to go back and look at, uh, at what all the variables were there. I mean, I think heat was definitely one of the problems. Uh, it's possible. We we do have, see a little bit of what is probably some phylum pressure in some spots around the farm, and that may have been an issue. Um, also, being on an urban lot, and we're kind of... Wait, what did the, you call it? Phylum pressure? Oh, some phylums. Oh. Some phylums are these little uh, pests. They live in the soil, um, and they eat root hairs. Uh, they basically eat organic matter, but they also eat root hairs. Um, and um, you really don't want to uh, even mention them. They're kind of the unmentionable pest because there's not a whole lot of anything you can do about them if you have them. Um, but they will totally stunt plants um, and they, they can be completely devastating to a crop. Um, uh so um yeah so we so we have some problems with those in, in certain spots and they move around a little bit but you know the the approach that we take um is kind of a, is a kind of self-insurance in some ways where we grow lots and lots of different things every year and uh so this year wasn't a great onion year but it was you know maybe a good tomato year and it's been a really good chard year um so you know, even though people aren't getting a lot of all of the different things that we grow, uh, they're getting some of everything and they're getting a lot of some things and not as much of other things. And what those things are just changes from year to year based on, you know, what we end up having problems with one year versus another year. Totally. Uh, so, and it, I think it's, I think it's just not predictable enough and we don't have as much control as we want to think that we have. Um, and so that diversity is really the the insurance policy that we take out. I think it makes it good though, because it kind of like gives you a change in variety of your diet. Like if everything was always yes. the same, it'd be boring anyway. So it's kind of neat to have the different variety Absolutely. of uh, diversity of vegetables. And then, like you said, it's good for your, probably like your soil and your garden pot and where you're putting your vegetables. And your humility. <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> so did you plant onions from seeds this year or like are they yeah. Mm -hmm. uh yeah we plant onions from seed every year we, we start them in the greenhouse um and we actually uh i i've been using plug trays so we we plant uh, about four seeds per plug um and we're shooting for about uh two to four plants per per location so we kind of grow them in clumps um uh, instead of growing them individually one one at a time and that just gives a little bit more space between the clumps which makes them a little bit easier to hoe and the hoe is our primary um, tool for for cultivating for keeping weeds down oh, and and the onions are really sensitive to weeds so that's something that we but want they to don't do. like the onions don't like grow too close together so they're like yeah, they do. They grow right next to each other, right up against each other. And um, and they actually 
surprisingly they're, they're pretty round still um but you might get a little bit of flattening on one side and i always call that a feature so that they don't roll around on your cutting board yeah that's what i was thinking uh, yeah so i, I mean I've, I've found this basically with most if not all plants where um the the um what particular spacing you use in terms of like the space between the row and the space in the row doesn't as matter uh, as much as just the density of the number of plants in a particular amount of area. Um, so, and what I mean by that is like with the onions, instead of planting um, an onion every four inches in a line, if we plant um, three onions, in one spot and then three onions in a spot a foot later, that's the same number of onions in that line. Um, and they'll grow, we'll basically get about the same yield. Um, so we don't, you know, the, the literal spacing, you know, we could, as long as we've got, you know, four onions in a foot, it doesn't matter where those four onions are within that foot, it's gonna be about the same yield. Hmm. Cool. I feel like you're dropping tons of golden seeds. Like listeners are getting lots of value from this. Like I said, my guests are what make my show successful. And just, I feel like we're all learning a bunch from you. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's lots of other, you know, there's a, so you can play with other things within those factors within, you know, so it may be that, and we're doing, you know, we're specifically planting them closer together in the particular spots to allow space for the hoe. Um, it also allows a little bit of extra airflow, um, but it's not shading the ground as much. Um, and we plant, play with that plant spacing on all kinds of stuff like kale and, and lettuce and uh, tomatoes and, you know, everything else where, uh, we may use the same density, but we might use a different number of rows, uh, different inline spacing in the row, depending on whether or not we, you know, have two lines of drip tape on a bed. And so we're trying to get just two lines of something as opposed to three lines of it, or, um, you know, we're trying to open something up for more airflow. So we're trying to get the plants further apart from each other, maybe for that reason. There's all, all kinds of, you know, ergonomics, you know, we don't want to have to reach as far as so keeping stuff in particular positions. There's all kinds of reasons why, why we move that plant spacing around. But as long as we're getting the same amount of plants in a general area, um, we can play with, you know, how many rows and how far apart within the row. Cool. Good to know. Well, Josh, this is the part of the show we call getting to the root of the thing. So do you have a least favorite activity to do in the garden? Like something you got to force yourself to get out there and do? <laughs> uh, it, it, you know, I saw that question and, and uh, I, I couldn't think. Of, I mean, there's lots of things. You know, I, I'm, I'm failing on the single answers <laughs> here for That's you. Okay. And I'm just I'm, on every one. I, I feel like yeah, there's lots of things where it's like, yeah, it's not necessarily my favorite thing to do. Like, uh, I don't know, maybe just to pick one. Uh, I don't love putting out floating row cover and having to pick that up and put that back. But we use a lot of insect netting and floating row cover at certain times of year for certain crops. And that's not my favorite. But I've, you know, I figured out ways that uh, to put it down and to, to make it a little bit easier on myself. And 
What's one um, tip you have for that? Because I actually use grow cover to cover my tail this mm-hmm. year and like having to uncover it to water every night, it was kind of like, uh, oh, you can water it over top of the deal, but I know, but it just didn't seem like it was soaking yeah, through soaking enough through. and it felt like it was wasting water and just, I felt like mm-hmm. if I took it off, well here's here's a tip you know this may actually be answering that question a little bit sideways but uh uh, are you hand watering is that what you're well so my husband does like what i said is like the mini farm which is like you know got big long rows and he just does a big sparkler spray but i take care of the beds that are closer to the house more Mm -hmm. and so they're smaller so i'm pretty much like i'll put like a sprinkler that does like a three foot radius in each mm-hmm. bed and then move that from bed to bed because we have really limited water and so yeah i don't want to water the rock walkway and so i just have all these tiny beds and so like i'll water each space for like 15 minutes and then move it and then 15 minutes here and move it and it just yeah. doesn't get the deep watering enough like it probably should but yeah so it so in the book uh build your own farm tools uh i have a section on irrigation uh equipment um and that talks about setting up drip and it talks about setting up uh you know some sprinkler and then it also kind of goes into a little bit of the background about sizing that stuff and um one of the things uh and, and i'm kind of you know mentioning this because you're talking about row cover and we do water just directly over the row cover um so and the water will go through the row cover which is one of the great things about it um but if you um uh there's a there's what's called an infiltration rate um and that's how fast something will absorb the water that you're putting down and your soil has an infiltration rate and there's also basically an infiltration rate to the row cover so how fast can you put water through that row cover um and if you're seeing any when you're watering if you're seeing any puddling on the soil that's not really a great thing and so putting down water a little bit more slowly is is a good thing Um, and that's really hard to do by hand um and so you can get all different kinds of there's no puddles anywhere where i'm watering (laughs) yeah yeah i have a like you know like I said, and especially in July when it was so dry and we just have drought conditions. I mean, it just. Yeah. So, um, so what you, what, uh, what you'd want to do is if you have a, you know, the low enough rate, then you can calculate and you don't even necessarily have to do the calculations, although you could kind of do the pre-calculations so that you know the ballpark that you're in and then you go back and check this with a rain gauge. Um, but those little sprinklers, um, you just put a little cup on the ground that's got straight sides up and down, which is basically a rain gauge. And then you water until that cup fills up. Um, uh, and, and I've got the calculations in there, but, or the explanation, but basically it's usually about an inch a week. It might be more like a half an inch at certain times of year and certain plant sizes and might go up to two, maybe even three inches a week and really when the plants are huge and things are hot and dry and windy and that kind of thing. But um, <clears throat> but you wanna put the, the water on for long enough that you're getting you know, the amount of water that the, that the plant actually needs, but you need that to go for a long time. So when you say you're just watering for 15 minutes, I 
hear that and I think, well, that's not, either you're putting the water on too fast or you're not putting enough water on because typically when we're putting down water, we're putting it down not as fast as you po as we possibly could, but we're putting it down pretty fast and we're our sets are three hours long. Um, and so, and we're doing that twice a week. Um, so that's, you know, six hours a week. If you're doing it once a day, that would be almost an hour a day. Um, and so I go through all those calculations and kind of how to figure those pieces out in the book um, for yourself and kind of, you know, how we set up our systems in terms of, of watering. And with the sprinklers, the sprinklers, you can buy them at different uh, rates. So they'll put out different rates of water. Um, and so my suggestion would be get a, get a sprinkler that does the radius that you want. You can get little mini sprinklers that do very small radiuses and, um, and you know, let that water just directly over top of the row cover or even down inside the row cover and then turn it off, set your timer and um, come back and either the timer, if you have an automatic. Even but are you old, saying like you're giving a plant six hours of water a week? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, but, you know, that's with the particular sprinklers that we have. So, you know, that, uh, if, if you had a different sprinkler, it would be a different amount of time potentially. Um, but that's, that's how long it's taking us to put down a, a little bit over an inch of water in a week is six hours. Um, because if you put it down too fast, the water can't absorb into the soil. Um, you're starting to compact that soil up on the surface um, uh, and uh, potentially causing other other problems. Does that does that make sense? That totally makes sense. Plants <laughs> are so thirsty. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is a lot of water compared to what I give these poor little things. A miracle they grow uh hmm. yeah so you, right, i mean I'll you want to measure i mean it, it's hard to, it's hard to compare to what you're doing because i don't know how fast you're putting i don't know how fast you're putting down the water so you could be putting down the same amount of water in 15 oh minutes no i'm putting no, down no, in three no, hours but it's very little it does not yeah. come out very fast we have we have two wells and they both just uh i don't know we just don't seem like i just can't imagine ever having enough water to grow it's a miracle we grow what we grow. Anyway, yeah. on the flip side, Josh, what is your favorite activity to do? Uh, I, you know, again, I have, there's lots and lots of things that I love to do. Uh, just to, to pick one out, um, and I kind of have mixed feelings about this in some ways, but uh, hoeing is one of my favorite activities. And um, it's partly because it feels productive. It's also my time to kind of, uh, you know, pay more attention to the plants um, when in typically I'm hoeing when they're first growing when they're young. And so I'm kind of seeing how they're doing getting off to a start as I hoe past them and I can hoe a bed pretty quickly if I do it when the when the weeds are really, really small and the plants are just a little bit bigger. Do you have a um, special kind of hoe that you prefer? Uh, it depends on the situation. I have lots of different hoes for different mm. conditions um, in different situations. Um, and I tend to like hose 
Um, you know, if I was going to kind of pick just one for weed. No, um, I want to hear about like what conditions you use each hoe for. Yeah. So, so I use the, the, the light ones that I use for the lightest conditions. Um, and I like the narrow one. There's, there's a narrower one and a wider one of the collinear hose. Um, uh, and you can get those lots of different places. Johnny's sells them under that, that name. Um, and, um, the, those hose, it, it, you know, it's kind of like a very thin blade on the end of a stick. I mean, that's basically what a hoe is. And these are, you know, thin, small blades. So they're just for going right underneath the surface and, you know, just disturbing the surface and slicing the weeds, pulling them just below the surface when they're really small. The weeds, you know, they work best on weeds that are kind of just have their first cotyledons and they're just poking out. Um, so that's kind of the stage for that. But that's a good time to get them. That's the perfect, that's in my mind, that is the perfect time to get them. Yes. <clears throat> um, if it goes a little bit past that, or I've got some grasses in there that are a little bit heavier, some perennial weeds that need a little bit more chopping, or I've got a little bit wider space. Um, there's a company called DeWitt that makes, uh, it's a Dutch company that makes really beautiful um, uh, hand-forged hose, uh, and they have one that's called a swan neck hoe, and I like, I like that one quite a bit. Um, there, uh, there's another company, Rogue, that makes hose from uh, repurposed uh, ag discs. So the big, you know, discs that go behind tractors and they, you know, take those old worn out discs and they turn them into hose. And um, they have some nice chopping hose um, that I use for, you know, kind of in heavier conditions and also for killing. If I'm gonna be killing potatoes or killing leeks or uh, celery, those are all things that we kind of ridge up a little bit. That's a good hoe for those. Just, you know, chopping out larger stuff and blackberries are on the edge of kinds of things um and then i've got a bunch of different rakes which i kind of use um, mostly when it's a little bit wetter kind of as a follow-up to the hoe when the weeds are a little bit larger and that um, following a hoe with a rake or just raking when it's a little bit wetter and the hoe is getting clogged both those things bury and um kind of drag out more of the weeds and and help knock the weeds down so uh, that's a sampling of the hose but typically i like the hose where it's kind of you know a single that comes down to a blade that goes out either end i don't really love the um the hula hose that a lot of people like because i can't get underneath the plants as much with those um, and i also tend to have to uh, crouch you have to stoop a little bit with those whereas with these types of hose that I'm talking about, it's more of an upright standing position, which is a little bit easier on my back. Yeah. What's the best gardening advice you've ever received, Josh? Uh, I think the best advice that I received was from Jack Smith, who I mentioned earlier. Um, uh, and Jack uh, had this organization called the Urban Agriculture Network. And when I was first really interested in doing something in urban agriculture. I got lucky and ended up uh, having breakfast with him and, and he was super generous with his time. And he said, go and learn uh, growing from farmers. 
uh, is like, go, you know, forget urban for a little bit, go out, um, learn from people who have already been doing it. And, and, and I wouldn't, I, you know, I think more the point that I'm trying to make is, um, you know, find mentors, <laughs> uh, you know, find somebody to follow and not just for a couple of days, but for, you know, full seasons. Um, and one of the mistakes that I, I think I made, um, I don't think it wasn't the worst mistake in the world, but I, in retrospect, I um, think I would have done things differently is when I did my apprenticeship, I had the opportunity to do a one-year apprenticeship or a two-year apprenticeship. And I was like, well, I want to see another spot. So I did one year and then left and went somewhere else. Um, but in retrospect, I think it would have been better if I'd done two years because you think you've seen what somebody's doing if you've been through a season in one year and you don't have the experience, but things change every single season. And so under, with that second season, I think you start to get a better sense of uh, what are the things that this person does always and what are the things that they change when they need to change them. And really most of the things are gonna be things that they change when they need to change them. And you don't get to see that as much uh, with just one season. So I think, you know, finding somebody in your area who's who can, you know, essentially be a mentor in one way or another, and then, you know, establishing a longer term uh, uh, relationship with that person. Um, and, so where did you, know, you go do your two internships? Yeah. So so the. Um, the formal apprenticeship that I did was uh, at a farm called Hidden Va uh, sorry, Hidden Villa, and that was in Los Altos Hills in, in California, um, so kind of right on the edge of Silicon Valley, um, and with a wonderful farmer named Andy Scott, um, and um, uh, and I spent 12 months at that farm. Uh, and then left to go work on a, a farm in Connecticut. Um, and I, you know, I, I had a great experience in uh, Connecticut also, and, you know, met, met my partner there. Um, so, you know, I don't have regrets about that in that sense. Um, but um, I, you know, in retrospect, I know if I had stayed with Andy for a second season, I would have learned a lot more. I thought I had kind of learned everything after one season. And, um uh knowing what i know now and kind of um uh you know having kept in touch with him over the years uh, he's unfortunately no longer with us but um i kept in touch with him and went back and visited uh, pretty much every year after that uh i realized uh, i would have gotten a lot more out of this if i'd stayed for a second season hmm. interesting oh that's sad uh yeah I mean, for sure, like as a teacher, I never really got to teach two grades in a row. It seemed like I was always moving yeah. around either kindergarten one year, first grade, third grade. Then even like when I did kindergarten again, like they changed curriculums. And so I never felt like I got to. And so I can totally relate to that. Yeah. But on mm -hmm. the flip side, I also feel like I have a lot of advantages. Someone who's been teaching kindergarten or teaching third grade their whole career that they didn't have because I knew where the kids, you know, came from, where they were going. Yeah. Um, like I, my last, one of my last years was, well, I taught fourth grade and then the next year I taught third grade and it was a lot easier to teach third grade knowing where they had to be to go into fourth grade and just, you know, so ah, 
there's yeah yeah you know. no I, t- I totally agree and I, you know I, I'm not saying stay stay somewhere forever <laughs> I mean there could be benefits to that but I but I think that um, but for sure know, I can people... see that because like when you're learning something new you don't know what you don't need to know and it's just like it's also new and then to go back and like you're, you're just going to pick up more context and more things and you're going to be and you and because you know where you have to get to you know, like starting in March, you know where you need to be April or May or something. When you're starting out yeah. in March, you're going to have better. Like, I can see that too. That, you yeah. know, because everything's so new in the beginning, you're not picking up a lot of those lessons. And yeah. it almost kind of reminds me of like watching a, mo- watching a movie over and over. You're always picking up more. That I watch a lot of repeated movies. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> kind of on that movie, on that movie analogy, I mean, it's got to be, you, you got to pick a good spot. So, you know, don't stay in a spot that's not a good spot for, for more than a year. Don't watch a movie yeah, that's not sure. a good movie more than once. <laughs> but if you watch a really good movie or if you pick a really good, you know, farm or, you know, I, you know, have a gardener who's, you know, definitely, you know, worth it, it's worth coming back for, for a second or third, you know, season or a second or third viewing. Uh, to, pick up on more yeah so do you have a favorite tool (laughs) you're not really Uh, gonna move and only take one tool with you you know if if i had only one tool to work with on a farm it would be a hoe um i think the hoe is the most versatile tool on the on the farm um uh but uh but no i don't i don't have favorite tools i mean there's lots and lots of tools that i like i mean one of the tools you know that's just really close to me on the farm is the car um uh, the that's totally the, what uh, i was farm card which is on the cover of the book uh you know it's kind of the largest picture on the cover of the book and that's a a tool that i love and it, it you know i have a i actually have a background um when I was in high school, I worked in bike shops, high school and college. Um, and I kind of got into the engineering thing thinking that I was gonna be uh, uh, working in the bicycle industry. And that oh, part is, you know, is kind of my connection. It uses bicycle wheels. I know, um, I for love some that. Particular like, totally, reasons. I have all these bicycles that like need recycled that like, you know, have a broken part here and yeah. a broken part there. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I can make these garden carts. Especially like we finally bought one of those, um, I don't know, like like a like one of the uh, uh, Vermont carts or something, you know. I don't know. It's like a wagon type of thing, and the sides fold down and screen. Oh no, different than what I'm thinking of. And it like tips all the time, and it drives me crazy. And like when I first came up with this question, I originally thought a shovel, but then I changed it to a wheelbarrow. And like I was just telling my husband the other day, like I would rather have a wheelbarrow ten times over the stupid cart that. I do like it. I have used it a lot, but just like you have to be so careful with it tipping over that it's just you have to you have to learn. And yeah. your cart, like I'm like I am gonna. This is gonna be one of the first things I want to do because <laughs> I think a cart. You're, you're always moving things. You're always hauling things. Like the in the in the spring, I like literally went to Kalispell and was like, I am buying two wheelbarrows this year. One for Mike's mini farm. One for me, and then we have the one that we use for firewood and it's just staying up here by the firewood and just i don't want to and then i couldn't fit any of them in my car <laughs> it's like the stupidest <laughs> most annoying thing like i literally could not I had to take it back in home depot i couldn't even buy one and i love that they're made out of recycled bicycle parts 
yeah. Tell us about the card again. Well, so so and, and uh, the card that's on the cover and the one you know that's the one that's basically uh, the design is for in the book. And I've made lots and lots of different versions of this, so you know you kind of get oh, one version in the awesome. book. Awesome. Um, but uh, it I, it actually is an evolution from uh, what I, what I think is commonly called the garden cart, which has got two 26 inch wheels and it's kind of plywood sides mm -hmm. and um and it, it's made from it's got usually got a metal conduit handle there's lots and lots of versions out of there it, it's a great cart those are fantastic carts but they didn't have a lot of the ergonomic features that i wanted in terms of it's got a the cart that i designed has a higher bed um, which makes it easier to load um and it's a flat bed so it doesn't have sides and it's got a handle that's uh, up higher, which means you don't have to bend over as much to pick up the handle. And then the, the positioning of the wheels uh, helps with the, the load carrying. So there's a, you know, a lot of features like that. And then the reason for the bicycle wheels is that bicycle wheels are much more common than cartwheels. I mean, most places have bike shops and you can get bike, uh, you, you can replace them really easily. And so it's, designed uh to take bike wheels and they're they're typically a little bit uh higher quality in some ways than cartwheels although they may or may not be as heavy duty as uh, cartwheels depending on what you get um and these days you can get really fat tires for them also which is that's what i was thinking benefit. yeah um so if you you know if you get the bike wheels with really fat tires especially and where we car, are where people mountain bike a lot and then you see yeah. people with these super fat tires anymore it seems like yeah exactly and those roll over you know just a, having a larger wheel diameter and then a wider wheel those two things help it roll over bumpy ground more easily so the cart in the yeah. book is you know kind of designed size wise for that one to five acre farm and actually it was the, originally i designed it on a farm that was about 10 acres that we were um using it all the time on on that particular farm um if it was you know if you're just using it around your garden it's it's too big a cart <laughs> it's uh, uh it's it's long it will not fit in your car um although um i i have built a you know, kind of a, a version that breaks down flat. So it's a little bit more complicated to build and it's got uh, more parts, parts that bolt on and a little bit more adjustability. And that one actually does break down flat enough that I can fit it into my Honda Fit. Um, uh, and uh, I've actually put three or four of those in my, in my car all at the same time. The other struggle I have that I wanted to ask you about is so I have this chicken tractor that I bought that mm -hmm. is so ridiculously heavy yeah um it also has like it's missing a tire so i bought these two flat three tires from amazon that i have the intention of putting on it someday if i can ever get someone to help me because it is just so heavy it's so hard like it's super heavy duty yeah. but it's so heavy it's hard to pick up so i'm i just like i don't know i just wonder have you yeah, built you know, any chicken tractors or things like that? And I I have, and that was a uh, you know that reminds me of a lesson that was really driven home uh, well for me in my engineering school uh, on a few projects that I was on, where uh, basically heavier is not necessarily better. <laughs> um, no. So 
you know, you want to build it heavy enough uh, that it's strong enough that it's going to hold up, but you don't want to build it any heavier than that because if, you know, as you build it heavier, uh, it gets harder and harder. It's more material, so it's generally more expensive. Um, and it gets harder yeah. and harder to use it, uh, to move it around, put it into position. So sometimes you need something that's really heavy, but most of the time you don't need something that's really heavy and people just overbuild as a way of thinking that that's going to make it stronger. Mm-hmm. So, you know, going through some of the background material in the appendices of the book and learning what actually makes something stronger um, and it's not necessarily weight it's not just putting more material it's very it's putting material in the places where you need more material and actually putting less material in the places that you don't need more material because having too much material can actually weaken something in certain locations so um you know, so that's just bringing up this thought of like, when you design something, you need to design it um, and build it, uh, you know, with the end use in, in mind. And I see that a lot in chicken tractors where people just keep adding things on and they get so heavy that they, they really are unmovable. But the wheel is fantastic. So, you know, you've bought these, these wheels and if you put them in places um, uh, that help carry the load, <laughs> then hopefully those wheels will be the ones carrying the load and you won't have to and you can just push them uh, and, they'll, and they'll continue to roll. Um, um. Yep, we'll see if I ever figure out how to get them on there. Mm-hmm. And what's the other, the, the thing I'm worried about is like the tires that are on there right now are like super tiny like lawnmower tires and the tires yeah. I bought I thought we're going to be wheelbarrow for my wheelbarrow. Yeah. But they're not quite big enough to run the wheelbarrow, but they're mm-hmm. a lot bigger than the tires that are on there. And so then I'm worried, like, it's not going to be flush on the ground. How to figure right. all of that yeah. Out. So you might, you might need to move the mounting point. Um, the other thing that you might look at is you, you, you know, taking those wheels and, um, uh, essentially making a, a temporary bracket. Um, so uh, I've seen a number of people do that. I'm thinking of a friend of mine who um, she has the wheels um, for her chicken tractors um, with kind of an axle going through the wheel that sticks out, <clears throat> that maybe sticks out, uh, I don't know, six inches or so. And then she has holes inside of the chicken tractor for those axles to stick in, but she doesn't actually leave the wheels on there all the time. She just uh, lifts up the tractor a little bit and then slides the stub of the axle into that hole um, on either side. That lifts the tractor a little bit off the ground. And then she rolls it to the next place and then takes the wheels back out so that the tractor sits back down on the ground. And does it have four wheels? Like my tractor only like has two wheels and then mm-hmm. you kind of pick it up on the one end and that's where it's super heavy. And I think that's why the lawnmower tire broke. Yeah, it's a, that's that's quite possible. Um, I, I think that she uh, has relatively lighter ones and they're just two. And so she picks it up from the other end and that kind of thing. 
but uh, so you could get four wheels or uh, what you can do is you can make that spot, you can make that whole, I don't know how your tractor is designed exactly, but if you were to put, uh, for example, the whole, uh, if you have a long rail along the side, for example, down that's sitting on the bottom and there's room to put that hole through that long rail so that you could just stick that axle through, um, you lift it up, you put that hole about a third of the way back. Um, now that wheel is supporting more of the weight. Um, and when you lift it up, you don't have to lift up as much of the weight as you were. So if, it, if the wheel is on one end and you're lifting on the other end, the wheel is essentially lifting half the weight and you're lifting the other half of the weight. But the closer the wheel is to the center, if the wheel was in the exact center, the wheel would be supporting all the weight and you wouldn't be lifting any weight when you lift it up and down, you know, like a seesaw, it would be completely balanced. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. So the closer the wheel gets back towards the center, the and usually you don't want to take it all the way to the center, although maybe you, maybe you do, you could just stick it right in the center and then all you're doing is kind of balancing it and pushing it wherever you need. I don't know. I haven't looked at it in like two or three years, so I'll have to go double check and see. Yeah. But cool. That's good to know. Mm -hmm. How about a favorite recipe that you like to cook or eat from the garden? Uh, well, uh, you got to tell me what time of year. <laughs> because you know, the garden is very seasonal and there's, uh, you know, different recipes. Uh, well, it's September, let's say you're so in September. Yeah. Um, gosh, you know, I was in Spain a few years ago and there, and there are some recipes uh, that I kind of brought back from, or some dishes that I brought back from Spain. Um, actually, we got a Spanish cookbook afterwards and it matched some of the, the things that I had had there that were just fantastic. And those are the things that I've made recently. So they're sticking in my head. And one of them actually is one that I make quite a different, uh, make in the spring a lot. And then I make uh, now starting in the fall again when the chard is kind of prime and that's a braised chard. And so I'm just chopping up onions and the chard stems actually and cooking those for 20 or 30 minutes uh, in olive oil until they're super soft and then adding the greens um, and a little bit of turmeric and salt and uh, water and cooking that down for another 20 or 30 minutes until that whole thing's super smooth and then adding garlic croutons to that. Um, that's, a, that's a great dish. Um, there's another one that I made. Uh, I really like bread, so uh, you know, I usually have a lot of extra bread around and, um, uh, called Samarejo. And it's a fantastic way to use lots of tomatoes. Um, and basically it's, it's very similar to gazpacho, except it's just tomato and garlic and olive oil and bread. Um, and you just basically are pureeing that, that tomato um, if you have a food mill, you can put it through the food mill to get the skins and seeds out and then um, pureeing that again with bread that you've soaked in that liquid for a while um, with some garlic and olive oil <clears throat> and eat that as a cold soup. And do you make your own bread? Delicious. I do make my own bread. Yeah, I mm -hmm. make a lot of bread. Um, so that's been a, you know, kind of, a, I've, I've always enjoyed eating bread and, and I've been uh, my mom taught me how to, uh, you know, kind of the basics of making bread when I was um, 
you know, probably in junior high or high school. Um, and I've been trying to make the perfect loaf ever since then and figured out that there isn't a perfect <laughs> loaf, but I <clears throat> uh, just continue to, to enjoy making bread. Oh my gosh. I saw these pictures on Facebook the other day of these um, Van Gogh inspired focaccia breads that are oh. just like so amazing. Where they were decorating the top with vegetables. And Did uh, you see those? Fruit. I haven't. I don't know that I've seen those in particular, but I've definitely seen. Uh, they are uh, super cool. Yeah. I don't know what they made the flowers out of. Like uh, just like the designs. They are really neat. I think, yeah, they use like peppers and things to make like the flowers and I think they did use some flowers actually to make some of them. I don't know. That's an interesting question. Uh, I forgot what I was going to say. I made some bread crumb. My husband bakes bread a lot this morning uh -huh. to make. I made like the zucchini eggplant parmesan type of thing with the breadcrumbs. That was oh, yeah. good. Uh, how about a favorite internet resource? Where do you find yourself surfing on the web? Um that you know i would say the the seed companies actually yeah. so um I, I don't have other places where you, you know this isn't internet necessarily i have some uh some really great groups of farmers um you know kind of discussion lists um of people you know with people that i know um who are other farmers. So that's kind of getting back to that mentor thing. And, you know, kind of after the mentorship, developing relationships with other growers um, that you can have these ongoing discussions with. So not internet specifically, but just email wise, these lists are great because it's like, you know, anyone, any one of us has a question about something we can send it out to the full list. And uh, you're almost certain to get back, you know, four or five responses, which are all you know, some of them might match and some of them might be different, but they're all very high quality because, you know, we all know each other. We're all very experienced. We've been doing this for a long time. That's what um, I so was thinking, great... that they're vetted resources that you know yeah. and trust. Yeah. And we, and we know, yeah, we know who each other are and kind of where that information is coming from. So it's really, you know, a lot easier to kind of uh, understand what the person's saying and kind of what their conditions are. Yeah, because you see some answers in like some Facebook groups and you're just like, no no <laughs> yeah it's like well may, you know maybe that makes sense to this person for a particular for their particular situation right. yep whatever but you also don't know if you don't know that person you don't know well is this person joking or are they serious or how serious are they and where do they live um, and yeah where do they live what's their climate what's their conditions what's their experience level all that kind of stuff so i don't actually find those you know facebook groups often that uh you know if i know the person who's commenting or who's asking the question then it can be that same kind of thing but that's that, you know, that's more rare um but the seed companies you know kind of go back to my original answer um there's a lot of great information within the variety descriptions a lot of times and then um you know, more and more online, this is happening. And it's always been in the catalogs where there's all this cultural information about, you know, how much spacing, you know, what's a good spacing to grow this thing at? How long does it take, you know, to, should you expect it to take to get to maturity? You know, how much, um, 
you know, how do you grow transplants? And then sometimes there's, you know, har harvest information in there. I, I would say, you know, just picking out one, Johnny's uh, Selective Seed, their catalog for years has been, just had a wealth of information in there um, uh, on all that cultural stuff. And I've learned a lot of things about harvest and, you know, uh, trellising and everything else just from reading the seed catalog. Um, so, you know, kind of the fine print around the varieties um, uh, and more and more of that, like I said, is being moved uh, into those online platforms. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I think as the single best resource, that's where I'm finding it. Yeah, yeah they have amazing videos. I also mm -hmm. found I found some good videos on AM Leonard's tool website, too, this summer. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Speaking of tool websites, maybe you need to work on some of your uh, your website. Oh, I, my website. It's funny because the reason part of the reason why I wrote this book uh, largely uh, was inspired to write it. Uh, the build your own farm tools book was I had a bunch of these designs uh, online and uh, I've never been very good about maintaining my website. Um, I hear you. And, uh, and keeping it up to date and it got hacked and somebody took it all down oh, and no. I just, did, I've kind of partially gotten it back up, but I was like, oh, I, I'm, I'm I done totally with the website thing. I'm going to write a book. So. And books you know. are so much better to read. Like who wants to be, yeah. like, I don't know. Part of the reason I took a summer job in a restaurant this summer is just, I am so sick of my computer. Like I just can't <laughs> even like, oh, like I literally drew a picture in my, journal of like my computer with like teeth like a shark like biting like I just couldn't after last year being yeah. on my computer so much and all the zoom calls and all the remote because I was teaching third grade when the pandemic started and like mm. between that year and then last year I worked for podcasters and I tutored online and just I just yeah. needed a break and I totally and then I still have not gotten over like I don't know when it was. Was it 2010? I think I built my first website of like, I'm also like, I don't know if I told you like my dream is to be like a children's book illustrator. And I yeah. had this awesome website and um, Apple got rid of their iWeb part, which I don't understand. I, uh, Apple, best. Apple does that over and over. They, they have these great pieces of software. And then they, after a few years, they're just like, eh. We're going to get rid of that. And, and I like, totally agree. I mean, all some the of, time I spent building that website and I just have never, ever gotten it back or found another, like, I like word. I love WordPress. I, you know, to me, mm -hmm. they're the best website and they're free and they've helped me so much. And now they have like a really inexpensive way to, uh, inexpensive way to add video. So you don't have to like post it to YouTube, which I love, but. I just can't bring myself to do it all for fear of exactly what you're saying, that it's, it's yeah. all going to get hacked on me. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, yeah, so I went and read the book and then, and I love your book. It's awesome. You know, hope, hopefully now, uh, you know, after having written the book and realizing how hard it is to write a book uh, for the second time, <laughs> uh, right? that is inspiring me to maybe go back and do a little bit more with the, um, uh, with the internet, but uh, but the other actually the other project that I'm kind of interested in um, putting together and this book is you know a little bit inspired me to do is uh, uh, the illustrations in the book are fantastic. Um, uh, 
but I know a lot of uh, other illustrators who I'd love to work with uh, and just artists who I'd love to work with. And so, um, you know, I kind of have this idea that I'd love to, you know, you know, do a lot of collaborations with artists and do a purely visual uh, versions of these things where it's like minimal text, but, you know, a lot more illustration stuff. Um, and uh, have them illustrate a lot of these concepts and, uh, of, of the farm tools and um, nice. the systems around the farm. Cool. I think that sounds awesome. Yeah, I'm totally. And also, like, you can take the book out there with you, whereas a video, I mean, I guess you could take an iPad, but. <laughs> so how about a favorite reading material that's not one of your books? Like, would it be that John Jevons book or is there another one or? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a whole series of, of books that uh, I think are fantastic. I think that John Jevons one was, I mean, that was super inspiring to me. I still refer back to mm -hmm. some of the, the um, it was actually uh, essentially what, what I'll call spreadsheets in that book, <laughs> um, these data tables. And I still refer back to those. Um, uh, um, I think... Um, uh, Elliot Coleman's books, uh, the, the longer I've been farming, the more I appreciate his books, actually. Um, and uh, JM's books, uh, or his book, Mar uh, Market uh, Farmer, I, I'm trying to remember the actual title of his book. The Market Gardener. Um, Market Gardener. Um, uh, his book, uh, when I first read it, uh, I thought, oh, this is really interesting. This is just like Elliot's book, but it's like JM's version of Elliot's book. And, and so in that way, I think it's just a fantastic, you know, kind of evolution, you know, kind of the next generation. And, um, uh, and I think there's some great stuff in there. I tried to write um, compact farms in a little bit different style because the way uh, John Jevons and Elliot Coleman and JM Fortier all write their books is they are highlighting their one system and i actually you know going back to what i was saying about going and spending two you know at least two seasons on a single spot i think it is really beneficial um, when you're first starting out um, to pick a system a good system and follow that and really learn that in some depth um, as much depth as you can get in a year or two or you know in reading one book and kind of following that for a couple of years with that system um but the compact farms was then you know kind of the <clears throat> the other side of that which is more what you were indicating where it's like well you, know, you, uh, you also get something from seeing lots of different examples and from doing different things and so with the compact farms i wanted to say you know there's not just one way to do this people are doing it lots of different ways and so here's 15 different examples of 15 different ways that people are doing it and kind of what are the factors that, you know that are making it work for them and why are they doing it differently than you know why is this one farm doing it differently than this other farm and why is it work why is this thing working for this farm uh, but this other farm's doing something different and that's working for them um so you know his uh, book's kind yeah. of a lot like that too is andrew mefford's no-till farmer yeah, yeah goes to. Uh, and like the only thing that i saw that seemed to be like definite between all of them was timing 
they all mm -hmm. seem to really have nailed their timing but that other than that like there were all these different ways to go about doing it which was really cool and you could pick up a thing here and pick up a thing there i can't wait yeah. to check out your compact farms book that sounds awesome because especially that's more our size too like my husband's mini farm is probably somewhere between i don't know a tenth of an acre and a quarter of an acre a third of yeah. an acre somewhere in there and just uh i'm always interested in what we can do to help him because he does it all by himself and like i want to bring on interns like we even signed up to do the woof thing and the pandemic happened <laughs> I also realized that we need to like figure out the bathroom, like camp, like because people would come here to camp, and like now we're having huge grizzly bear problems. Like I would just yeah. imagine having campers on your property, and anyway, yeah. the housing issue for people to come stay here. But yeah, um, that's all. That's all stuff that I talk about in the book. Actually, it's funny. Yeah, the bathroom thing is something where you know it's really easy to forget about that on the farm site, but you have to have some kind of facility for people <laughs> well probably we still use our outhouse here so we do have a bathroom but i just and other people probably aren't going to feel that way and just our house is small and like i said we have water issues so i don't know just to me that is like the number one thing i feel like we need is like a really nice bath <laughs> and then if they want to come camp and sleep in their tent because we had a lot of people that signed up and like even with the pandemic i had people like writing like I'd really like to come and I felt really bad. And I was just like, but I just, uh, I was worried about that. And I was also worried about actually being able to feed the people, afford to feed people. But um, I would love to, like, I just think my husband has so much knowledge and it would help him because he has a lot to do and it's hard for him to do it all. And I'm not that much of a help. And <laughs> I just think it would be a win-win for everybody but i can't and we live in a beautiful place you know and just like who wouldn't want to come hang out like glacier national park for a summer and just uh but definitely the bathroom thing is the key anyway we've been on the phone for almost uh over an hour and a half so here's my final question yeah. josh if there's one change you'd like to see to create a greener world what would it be for example is there a charity organization you're passionate about or project you'd like to see put into action like what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, but again, I'm going to take you know take this uh, approach of saying there's what I see is there's not just one thing; it's lots and lots of different little things. And um, and the thing that I you know, if I'm going to choose one thing to kind of highlight that I think fits in one organization that kind of fits in most with um, uh, the ethic and the, you know, the approach and the, and the practices that, that I have decided that I'm really going to focus on, it's, I think it's slow food. And that's, that's the reason why my farm was named Slowhand Farm. And that's an organization that I uh, you know, first kind of became aware of about uh, uh, That's Alice Waters, right? Well, yeah, Alice Waters is very, very involved in that, and uh, the founder of that, you know, kind of the guy that's that's held up as the the, the figurehead of that movement is this guy Carlo Petrini, who's an Italian, and it was started in mm. Italy. Um, and Alice Waters, I think, has been on the the board. Um, and she's been super, super involved 
in that organization for a long time. Um, lots of people all over the world. It's a it's an international organization, um, and they do all kinds of different work. Um, but basically, the idea is promoting food and the tagline for a while now has been good clean and fair food um and uh you know i think that is uh you know a lot of the ways that that organization um <clears throat> has put itself out there in the world where it's not necessary i mean it is against things but it's also it's really for a lot of really positive things and i've really appreciated that really celebrating diversity and kind of uh, information sharing and and um, and doing that all around food and kind of the community that food creates um, is a big part of that um, and uh, and culture um, and celebrating all these diverse cultures. Um, so I think uh, you know <clears throat> understanding and uh, good communication and understanding. Uh, are, are super critical in that question of how to create a greener, you know, better world. Um, and that's, you know, in a nutshell, what, what, um, what Slow Food is doing in this context of, you know, recognizing all these different, um, uh, that there are all these different cultures and that it does need to be lots and lots of different things, not just one thing. But that food is really a, a connecting piece for everyone everywhere. Oh, that's so awesome. Cool. Yeah, I found a whole website uh, about him and, and the movement and stuff. Yeah. Cool. I'll put that in the show notes. Well, Josh, thank you so much for sharing all these amazing golden seeds and just tons of information for listeners. And listeners, you know, I'm going to encourage you to get his book, build your own farm tools and check out also his other book, the compact farms. And when you love it, make sure you leave him a five-star review on Amazon. And just, uh, I hope that we get to meet in person someday or something and just, uh, keep up the good, good work and, and sharing your amazing, uh, information. You have just a wealth of information and we appreciate you taking all the hard work to write a book. <laughs> oh well, well thanks for us yeah thanks so much for having me and for for taking the time to uh get get the information out there so i really appreciate it yeah all right well you have a great day yeah you too get your copy of the organic oasis guidebook available today from amazon it's got 12 lessons designed to help you create your own organic oasis um, it starts with healthy soil. It talks about building an earth-friendly landscape. It helps you understand the difference between annuals and perennials and how to bring in beneficial insects. It talks about fruit trees and just um, all the lessons that I've learned on my podcast mixed with what Mike and I have done here. Okay. What Mike has done here at Mike's Green Garden and just um, I hope that it will help you on your garden journey uh, to create, like I said, your own organic oasis, um, where you can have healthy food and enjoy, um, you know, a very special place. And most of all, it's good for my, do you know someone who would benefit from the organic gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it. If you'd share the organic gardener podcast with a friend, thanks again for listening. And remember grow local.